Hello, welcome to Alive or Just Blathering, a podcast where two 30-somethings discuss the music we found and loved growing up. My name is Chris Lavender, and with me is my fellow host, Keith McLeod. Today on Alive or Just Blathering, I'll be taking us through The Colour and the Shape by Foo Fighters. You know what we should have totally should have done there was you did and this is by and I said Foo Fighters and Colour in the Shape like we did last time. That'd have been funny. Hey man, how's it going? Hey good man, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. This is uh This is the Foo Fighters. This is this is a this has been a strange one for me. That's strange for you to say. It's like I really hope we have the same Jimmy World vibes that we got a couple of weeks ago because you, you really took a positive message away from that one. This is this is what I was hoping for. I was hoping for another bleed American, but I suppose, well, it's just it's just not worked out that way, frankly. And okay, I don't know. Maybe because I was more aware of Foo Fighters, I've physically seen Foo Fighters a couple of times now. I have on and off been you know been aware and or listened to their music. Like, but I've never dived into an album. I've never heard stuff they hadn't released before, and it was a journey, shall we say? Okay. Okay, a journey is a good way to put it. I mean, they were—they've definitely uh, been one of those bands that I don't really dabble into too much. The reason I've picked uh, the color and the shape, I hope, becomes apparent as I as I talk about it. I've got a bit of definitely a lot of nostalgia for this album. I think it's probably the best way to put it. Well, we've said time and time again that is the backbone of this podcast is nostalgia. You know, revisiting the albums that we grew up with, and that's cool. There's nostalgia for me on this album. You know, there's there's big singles here. That, that they released and and you can you can escape them at the time so I've, I've i've known those songs well before and i've put them on mini discs i've put them on playlists or before whatever yeah so yeah that's that, that that makes sense no totally i think for, for me really just like cutting the brass tacks the uh, that early band that i mentioned in, in a previous podcast where we performed alien ant farm and baggy trousers and, and things like that one of the songs we were going to do, it, it was discussed, was Hey Johnny Park. So it was one of the first Foo Fighters songs that I listened to re- repetitively, like on just total loop 30 times a day, just for a whole few days, just to totally absorb it. So it's one of those songs that I just intricately know. And from there, you end up discovering the rest of the album. There was a, a, a close friend at the time who was telling me about uh, Foo Fighters and he, he was like that's the album, if you were going to pick any album that's the one by that point, I mean this must have been 2001-ish maybe two, mm-hmm. maybe even maybe later I probably discovered them and I was like do we go back to the, the last one they've just released, this was before the release of One by One so I was like should I listen to Nothing Left to Lose and again he was like mm, that one's okay go to Colour and if you're going to pick any album to start with, start with Colour and the Shape um, and it always surprised me. I think of this album as the Foo, as, as Foo Fighters' first album. And it isn't. This is their second studio album. Uh, the, their first album is the self-titled Foo Fighters album from 1995. But as I've discovered in my research and, and why it makes sense to me to, to think of it as their first album, it was the first one that the Foo Fighters actually wrote in a band situation in that it, yeah. had, it had three people basically credited in it whereas previous album all dave Grohl, as i'm gonna 
kick into. So tell me, why did why didn't you why don't you feel this one gelled with you? What was the do you feel that you know what the the sticking point was? I think for the same reason I've never particularly gotten into Foo Fighters over my life, you know, my, my music listening life, is that I just I think I can enjoy the music. There's there's like this isn't another golden state. There was definitely times I I enjoyed the music and was, you know, tapping along, but those moments were few and far between and just a lot of it didn't do a lot for me. Like I can and that's that's the tagline for me. Like this Foo Fighters don't really do anything for me. They're kinda not heavy enough to be like, oh that's that's kinda cool, that that's kinda heavy. But at the same time maybe not they don't the the Foo Fighters edge, I think you can tell a Foo Fighters song or a Dave Grohl song a mile away. But that hook, that thing that makes them Foo Fighters, again, doesn't do anything for me. So I, I sort of plodded along with this album. Like I say, there was moments going back to um, My Hero and Everlong was kind of cool. But generally speaking, I was just like, eh. eh. Okay. You know, there was no hidden gems for me. There was no like, oh, that's a surprise. Or, you know, why didn't the Foo Fighters ever do this song live? Or, or you know, release this song in a video? Like, it was just all meh. Kinda, you know, to be brutally honest, it was all kinda meh. Yeah, I think Dave Grohl is is a hit writer. He can write the hits. Can he make a full album of hits? Probably not. And I don't think I don't think there's many people that could. Um, exactly. Who who can make a full album of hits? Like I I don't think anyone you know releases a full album of singles. And sometimes you can see they're clutching at straws when you see them release you know, four or five songs off of an album because they're clearly flogging a dead horse. Actually, Hybrid Theory comes to mind. That was good. That was an example I had in my day as well, yeah. Totally. A really good album, but they absolutely beat that to death with, with all the singles they released off of it. In saying that, you're right, Dave Grohl can write some absolute bangers, but this wasn't an album of bangers. <laughs> like, whereas, <laughs> okay. whereas Bleed American had its bangers, had authority song, had praise chorus, and then had its also much more chilled moments that I got way more pleasure out of than, than say, this album. Sure. No, that's a that's a fairly fairly sensible thing to say. I mean, the Foo Fighters, it, they started as a, as a one-man project, as I've, I've sort of alluded to already. And it was Dave Grohl writing, and he'd, he'd been writing while he was touring with Nirvana. So while Nirvana was still going... He would take a guitar with him, and he would write songs on the on the tour bus. And he actually, while again still while Nirvana were, were performing, he booked a studio time, and he recorded an album called Pocket Watch, uh, and he recorded it under the name, oh, what was it called again? The Lost. It was uh, late, late. They recorded it as, and it, again, it was a joke name because he wanted to know. Sorry, we are late. That was going to be the punchline if he ever did a, a live performance. As far as I'm aware, Late never performed live. Um, but some of the songs that got written for this Pocket Watch album, they got reused by Nirvana for one of them. I believe the song uh, Marigold, that was the B-side to Heart Shaped Box. That's a Dave Grohl song. Uh, it also, cool. uh, one of the songs ended up on In Your Honour, which was their 2006 album, which was... Again, Dave Grohl being extremely passionate about I am doing an acoustic album. So he ended up making a double album. And I remember in, in interviews, he's like, I want this to be my physical graffiti. This like two, basically two albums put together, which is 
what Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti sort of is. Oh, I, <laughs> I didn't understand that reference, physical graffiti, and I was like, all right, mate, that's a bit wanky. Like, graffiti literally is physical. <laughs> did, you, did you not know the album by Led Zeppelin? I, another band I never really got into was Led Zeppelin. I never had a Led Zeppelin phase. I never went back and listened to any Led Zeppelin albums. Jinx. Didn't, never grabbed me. Like I was just like, all right, you know, there's Pyramid Song, blah, blah, whatever. I just kept going on with what I listened to at the time. Fair enough. Uh, that's probably one of the reasons you might not have grabbed onto Foo Fighters as much because there's a lot of Led Zeppelin influences taken in to Foo Fighters' work and he ended up working with like John, John Paul Jones's son with the bassist from Led Zeppelin, sorry, Keith. Uh, ended up working with his son yeah, yeah, all right, thanks. on them Crooked Vultures. So that was his little Led Zeppelin side right. project with um, uh, no, that's cool. Josh Homme. Like you said as well, just because I've not gotten into to, to, to this album or over the years really into Foo Fighters, like I have absolutely listened to Foo Fighters songs over the years, like I was saying. And like all credit to Dave Grohl, like he is a pro, he must be a prolific songwriter. I mean, just looking at the Foo Fighters back catalogue to see where they are just now, you know, starting from 95, like you said, with Foo Fighters, 97, 99, 2002, one by one, 2005, In Your Honour. 2007, a little bit of a break, 2011, 14, 17, 20. Like, the guy has been on it, or the guys have been on it. Totally. You know, They've never since stopped. For, yeah, for the better part of 25 years? And then you look at where where we would have discovered Foo Fighters, Great you know, that early 2000s period. You couldn't get away from Dave Grohl. He was you could the, not. As, the yeah, drum, he was drumming for Queens of the Stone Age. He was drumming for uh, Tenacious D. He was yep. drumming in them, and then later in like 2000, and then he had Probot and them Crooked Vultures. He was in everything, and he was the he was like this go to man that just people wanted in their band. He was that name they wanted attached them because he's his name sold records. But that was that was only four years after this album was released. It was he'd only been he'd made his name in Nirvana, absolutely, but then clearly he'd made him. He made it himself. He, he made him. He took his own name, and he made his own product out of it. In naming Foo Fighters, he's actually sort of regretted. Much like, much to think about what we talked about with Audio Slave, kind of calling back to last week. Um, right. In David Grohl, in Dave Grohl's own words, he said, "Had I actually considered this to be a career, I probably would have called it something else because it is the stupidest fucking band name in the world." <laughs> well, I mean, at least the guy's got some. Uh, oh shit! What's hubris. The word? Some hubris. Yeah, at least yeah. Self aware. He's, he's not. Yeah, self awareness. Thanks very much. The word escaped me there. But uh, yeah, at least he's he's level headed enough to to sort of know that. And like you're saying as well, Dave Grohl being everywhere, they've had some of the probably biggest rock hits that we will have seen. Like at least over the noise, so you know, learn to fly or times like these. I mean, times like these. Just I'm like pe- that's someone's wedding song. Oh yeah, that's, I mean? like, that's someone's first it's dance. It was used in political rallies. Um, it was used. It was there was then you have like the pretender that gets used everywhere. Yeah, and I have best of you. That was a pretty big song, wasn't it? Which one? Best of you. Oh, Best of You, again, it's another one of those corporate songs that just gets crammed into those bloody videos that you get forced to watch once a year. It's like, I got another confession to make. It's so yep. 
It's so accessible. Absolutely accessible as it can be, but it's a rock song. That and another fucking song that you can't escape from corporate functions if anyone's ever worked for a large corporation. It's fucking Nickelback's photograph. I've still to get you that picture frame for your birthday. <laughs> that here's look at this photograph. Yeah, like I, I mean I would listen to Foo Fighters all day over Nickel over a band like totally. Nickelback. To be fair. Uh, without but, without fail. You know, you're saying like oh corporate promotional videos or or, or what whatever like it's it's, it's it, that is Foo Fighters it is accessible rock like it's 100% accessible rock we coined the term either last week or in Jimmy Eat World with dad rock do you know what I mean and this is like this is sort of I think I remember going sort of out my way to if it was Father's Day or whatever I'm, I'm sort of the black sheep in my family I am the only one that is sort of musically orientated in my family no one else gives a fuck they like you know my parents like what they liked when they were young, but no one, no one else plays an instrument. No one else tried to play an instrument. No one has ever been in a band. No one has a particularly strong interest in music. It's only me out of my entire family. So when it came to like Father's Days or or, or Dad's birthdays or whatever, like I got like the rock compilation <laughs> discs, and if the I best, saw like the guitar volume three, hundred percent, and and like I remember being like, oh there's Monkey Wrench. I think he'll like Monkey Wrench. So I would get on the album because Monkey Wrench was on it. So that, maybe that's another reason I never got too much into Foo Fighters was they were a bit of a stepping stone for me to be like, hey, Dad, maybe we can talk about music. And he never wanted to talk about music. So I'm like, all right, well, fuck you, Foo Fighters. You've failed. <laughs> you and Nickelback and fucking that Queen song or whoever else was on that record. See, I got the... I had a totally different sort of... I wouldn't say upbringing, but different relationship with music um my dad he's played in bands when he was a teenager he's he was very much into his rock music i absorbed his vinyl collection when i was a child um much like i and i'm and i'm getting that vibe with with my kids just now that they're looking at my vinyl records and they they you know i want to play this one so today just today true story vivian pulls out i want to play this pink one it's Death Heaven, Sunbather. Oh, bless her. And I'm like, face. I'm not Honestly, I'm not you're... gonna I'm not gonna do that to you at four years old. I'm sorry. One day. Why one not? day we're gonna listen to it. But right now I'm just gonna play your Fleetwood Mac and she enjoys it. And her favourite song though, by far, is Jimmy World's in the Middle. She cannot stop listening to that song. My favourite song. The she sees the artwork on Spotify and she's like, the, the one with the trophies. Honestly, it's cute as anything. I saw your I saw your Instagram story. That was adorable. Although I'm pretty sure you wanted to sleep at the time. <laughs> usually the case is usually the case. Yeah. Um, back back to one. I mean, one of the reasons that Foo Fighters are so successful, well, Dave Grohl especially is so successful, is from day one he's he learned so much about the record industry playing in Nirvana. He he basically created his own record label. He knew he needed funding, so it wasn't his own. He wasn't like self funded. Far from an indie, uh, it was. It was a sort of a, an umbrella of Capitol Records, same people that used to deal with Jimmy World in their early albums. Mm-hmm. And he created Roswell Records. So Foo Fighters, which for anyone who doesn't know, is a, a reference from World War II, what World War II fighters would refer to uh, as as UFOs, you Foo Fighter. You know, what did you fight? Well, fighting the Foos. Things they couldn't identify. So kind of sticking with that UFO theme, okay, guys. Sticking with that UFO theme, Roswell Records was was what he created, 
Um, so right. they were umbrella and they were under the umbrella of, of Capital. Capital sort of went through their change change through, and now it's part of RCA. But effectively, Dave Grohl is the CEO of Roswell Records, and they are the owners of their own, and he is the owner of his own music. I mean, that's awesome. It's it's led to him being the, like one of the wealthiest people in rock music because he pays himself. He, he he earns it for himself. He he gets a you know, and he maybe gets an advance or used to get an advance from from RCA from Capital to write a record and make a record, but then since then he's owned all the rights to it. So when you listen to something, a vast majority of it goes to Roswell Records, and he gets to to you know takes a cut of that for himself, which is really interesting because every I think every episode we've we've sort of dabbled in file sharing haven't we yes to be fair you, you're far more prevalent in your memories of file sharing i've i've never particularly referenced finding anyone on on file sharing but yeah it's definitely it's definitely yourself that's and i did it i'm not gonna say i didn't do it but yeah it's all it's always a, it's always a joke when you talk about a band for the first time and it's well what did you download yeah, first well that was it what did you download first what did you go home what did you go to an app store did you smash in interestingly through that time you know we had one of my favourite bands Metallica they fucking hated it uh, we talked about Audio Slave last week they got interestingly or or conveniently one of the uh, one of the first things I do remember downloading was that Metallica um, Mission Impossible 2 song <laughs> and I misspelled Metallica and I remember a friend looking at me like you fucking idiot and I'm like what Touched. I don't, I, don't, well, I don't know. Totally, totally judging. Yeah, I think I think the song that kicked it all off was that song, I wasn't it? For for their war. Yeah, thank you for their war against them, um, peer to peer. Yeah, I think I think that story is that they heard it on. They heard someone else play. I think they heard a radio station playing it before. It, yeah, how the fuck has someone got this? But when Dave was growing up him and his friends would swap tapes of their favourite bands. Even though at the time there was campaigns that were home taping is killing the record industry. Now, it it has, you know, burst, the internet burst pop music's bubble by far. It had to make them rethink it. Grohl was said to, you know, he doesn't care. He thinks the most important thing is that people come along, sing it along at their shows when they pull into town. Sharing music is not a crime. It shouldn't be. There should be a deeper meaning to making music than just selling downloads. Good man. Good man. I think this is something... Ten points Ten points for Grohl. Yeah, ten, ten points to Grohlendor. <laughs> yeah, I did there. That was awesome. One thing we spoke about just before starting is I think I'm a bigger fan of Dave Grohl the man than I am his music. Yeah, he's, he's a big personality. He's a big personality. He was a massive, is maybe not so much these days, or certainly not in, in my eye line, but was a massive presence back in the day, ten, in the noughties into the 2010s and stuff like that. Like you're saying, you saw him with Tenacious D, you, you see him with Jack Black, you saw him with Queens of Stone Age, etc. Everything you said a couple of minutes ago. And I don't know, I, th- I think I'm aware of the, 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 the sort of issues with drugs that the drummer had, Tyler. Taylor, Taylor Hawkins. Taylor Hawkins, I think I'm aware of. I remember seeing something on on the television, MTV or whatever, and it was sort of a not a documentary. I don't actually know what what it was, feature it, whatever. 
but yeah, it was talking about his sort of issues with with drugs and, and how much Grohl like supported him with that and and helped him through that and sort of kept him in the band. Didn't didn't want to chuck him out of the band just because the guy's a drug addict. He's he's an addict. That's not his fault. So helped him through that. So I've always had Dave Grohl in a really good light in my head, whether he is or not. I'm not sure, but he certainly presented as. One of the good guys. Yeah, he's he's, he's one of that the nice nice guys of rock. He gets sort of painted as. Yeah, uh, I think especially when was it? I can't remember when it happened. It was within the last five or six years. He broke his leg at a show. Came out and then just played played the rest of the set yep. in a in a cast, and then unfortunately had to cancel a few gigs. Came back and he did those shows again when he was all better. And it's like you know making sure he he lived to his promises. And I suppose it kind of helps when, like you say, the guy's a very wealthy man when you've not got to worry about money. When, you, when I think it's, it's a line from Forrest Gump, you know, when you earn so much money, that money, you've got so much money, you just don't need to worry about it anymore. It's one less thing to think about. And that's really useful for life, I think. I just wanted to verify what it was I was saying about um Hawkins that you know I can't just put out there that he 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 was on drugs or whatever yeah uh, Hawkins overdosed on heroin in 2001 which put him in a coma for two wow. weeks I did not know that so I, I I just knew that there had been issues there in the past and I'm sure Grohl was was very much involved in, in sort of helping his recovery there well I'm going to be talking about the drummer situation when I when I talk about the the creation of the color and the shape the album we're meant to be talking about because really this was and this was a point I, I saw in a, a documentary about Foo Fighters again I don't know if it was a documentary or just a sort of snippet on back in the day in MTV2 effectively the creation of Foo Fighters was very public so me and you we've both been in bands we've gone through members lineup changes but it all happened sure. perhaps even before a demo was even recorded never mind your first live show mm-hmm what was happening with Foo Fighters, they were having lineup changes at the end of each album cycle or each live cycle, and it was very public. And the the media made a thing of it, which Dave Grohl really didn't like because, like, this is just what bands do. They find their feet. And it's not, on, it's not since basically 2005 that I'd say that Foo Fighters have really settled on their lineup. Uh, they've, they've added keyboard players. They've now got two guitarists. Three. They've got... Th- We've got three guitarists. Well, technically, Dave. Yeah, t- yeah. Um, Taylor is the drummer. So it's it's very much they they were still finding their feet. And Color and the Shape is the first time they had a a sort of bit of momentum behind them in getting a band together. First album fully written and recorded by Dave Grohl, except for I think one guitar part in one song. Uh, it was only after the recording was finished that they he recruited. Uh, Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith as the drummer. So Nate Mendel's the bassist from a band that had recently broke up called Sunny Day Real Estate. Now, Mm -hmm. he also picked up Nirvana's Pat Smear after the recording of the Foo Fighters' self-titled 1995 album. So he basically had a band that he could now do live shows with. Yeah. And they did that. They toured balls off effectively for the best part of two years they just toured relentlessly as a four-piece 
um, just pr- promoting so, themselves. Just getting themselves out there, doing the gigs. Well, I mean, you're saying bands have to find their feet. With all due respect to Mr. Grohl, who is infinitely a far more successful musician than I will ever be, most bands kind of find their feet before they get a major record deal. They would. So obviously Dave Grohl's name pushed him yeah. further forward. He was he was he, given the advance yeah. ticket. He was given the cue jump, whatever you want to call it, however you want to refer to it. Yeah, he he had he obviously had a name for himself by being in one of the biggest crunch bands that ever existed. And then off of his own skill and tenacity went and wrote an album by himself. So I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have gone and written albums by themselves and then not had, been had able the to connections. do what Dave Grohl yeah, did. He, he had the connections, yeah. he had the names. When your first band consists of, you know what, I'm going to have to say it, Keith, Foo Fighters, they're a super group. <laughs> are, they, are they a super group? I mean, I'm aware of Pat Smear being part of Nirvana before and, and, and punk bands earlier yep. than that. But what um what did who was William Gold? He was the drummer in Sunny Day Real Estate. They'd had several selling albums. I don't know what their sales numbers were like. They were an indie band. Uh, really, actually, listening to Sunny Day Real Estate recently, they were really ahead of their time. They were making stuff that have you ever listened? Have you ever heard the band American Football? No. Huge. They were they made an album in like the late 90s they made an album 1999 and it got nowhere no one gave a flying fuck about it it was just total like emo sort of garage band stuff and no one really paid attention to it 2010 2011 folk picked up on that album 10 years after the fact and it, they blew up and since then they've regrouped and made another two albums which have been fantastic but they were making music in 1999 we didn't get picked up until 2010 from a band that was making music in the early 90s. You know, it's the the the, the way that the, the amount of time that passed. If if Sunny Day Real Estate had come out in 2010, I think they'd be huge. Yeah, they were they were really ahead of their time. So anyway, the they'd broken up recently, and that's where Dave sort of got the the idea to take on Nate as the bassist and. And, and William on drums now. Well, like we said last week, if you've been in a band before, you're in a supergroup. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you've, we, we, you know, we discussed this before, like if, if supergroups are just made up of people that have been in bands before, then nearly every band is a supergroup. Yep. I suppose the difference being if you've been in an established band before. And, a successful band. Yeah, then you're a supergroup. So that's fair enough. So yeah, Foo Fighters, I suppose, are a supergroup. Yeah. So they, they toured and toured and toured. And it wasn't until November 1996 that they started sort of the recording process on The Colour and the Shape. Again, first album, that isn't just Dave. So when, in a creative setting, when it's just yourself, you've got no critics. You've got no one that's saying, no, I do it this way. You're just on your own, so you make what you want to make. So this time... You've got someone else in the room who's like, I like that, I could make it better. Or, I don't like that, I think we shouldn't use that. Now, they also got a very prolific producer in. Dave, I think, specifically wanted Gil Norton to produce this album. He wanted a pop sound to this album. 
you wanted that pop sensibility yep. that that sort of shines through and when you look at the credits that Gil Norton has to his name fuck me he is he has written the book on alternative rock in the 90s and into the 2000s talk to me what have we got Delamitri oh the pick oh the picks I'm done I'm done Delamitri see you later thank you very much Counting Crows Terrorvision so that's there's four bands that was before Colour and the Shape yep since Colour and the Shape he did Jimmy World's Futures your favourite album Dashboard Confessionals and Mark Commissioner Brand Scar. He did Echo Park by Feeder. Right. Which, for if you listen to Echo Park, it's basically the colour and the shape, but British. Funeral for Friends, Tales Don't Tell Themselves. My man, yes. Yeah, I knew that would catch Fucking you. A. As well as You, Me at Six, Maximo Park. Did you ever hear a band called Pure Love? No. It was Frank Carter's band after Gallows. Never liked Frank Carter. Okay, well, that was his band. Um, And he's since gone on to produce the latest 2019 Busted album as well. Busted, right, okay. And it was apparently, so he's Gil Norton, he's he's from Liverpool, he's British. And it was because of him, as a nod to him, is why the album is, colour, is spelt the British way with a U. Good, thank you for that. The correct spelling of colour, the colour and the shape, is colour the British way, and it is in a... A nod to Gil Norton, apparently, according to one article I read. Nice. I wonder how many Americans that fucked off. I don't know, about 50% of our audience is American, so they usually tune out after about 30 seconds as soon as they hear our accents anyway. Well, if anyone got this far and you're in the States, let us know. Does the word colour, C-O-L-O-U-R, in the Foo Fighters name, colour and the shape, piss you off? Give us a shout at AOGP Podcast. AOGP Pod. <laughs> always always be plugging. Always, always be plugging. I always, always plugging, mate. I was plugging. So, you know, this is uh, this is one of the most prolific producers going out there. The name Color and the Shape apparently came from the manager or the, the tour manager that they had, uh, Foo Fighters had at the time. He was really into like exploring thrift stores, uh, like okay. charity shops and what, what, second hand type what, places. What, and he found what, a... what, Sorry, th- th- thrift shop by Macklemore. I'm... Okay, I don't know Macklemore, sorry. What? I'm not that into pop music. It's a good album. Uh, I'll give it a listen. So anyways, he used to like his, his charity shops, his second-hand stores and things, and he had a bowling pin, and he, re- and he commented that he really liked the colour and the shape of the bowling pin. Uh... And apparently the band sort of like picked up on it as one of those things. It was something that he would say... And they were like, oh, it's just like the colour and the shape of this burrito. Oh, I like the colour and the shape of this bottle of red wine. You know, it was just one of those daft little sayings that goes on tour, stays on tour, and they, they ended up using it as the uh, the, the title of the, the album. Fair enough. Uh, the artwork, I'm not really sure much on the artwork. I didn't get a chance to really look much into it, but I know that he originally wanted to use a therapist's chair so the writing of this album was right when he was going through a divorce with his wife at the time. Dave Grohl. Yeah. Okay. And he saw this album as therapy. That and makes a bit apparently, of sense. When you look at the song titles in the in the order that they're in, in, in the 
apparently that is his he Dave Gold describes it as his sort of journey through therapy. So you've got the the, the anger and the sort of frustration in, in Monkey Wrench and then sort of the, the realization of things going wrong in my poor brain, up in arms, my hero, the sad stuff, and then sort of coming through to February stars and ever long that rebirth and regrowth into something new mm-hmm. and then walking after you and a, a new way home at the end is is it was his journey mentally through as he called it his therapy you can almost see that the album cover itself while not being a therapist chair is what's the um the the, the, the thing with the balls that are on the strings and you hit one and the, the the shock goes through and knocks out the other one a newton's cradle it sort of looks like a twisted Newton's cradle, if you know what I mean. I always think that it looks like a model that you would have in like science class of like a, an element. Or that. You know, the the sort of sticks between balls, stick and ball. I think oh. it's called the stick and ball model. Yeah, it's, that builds up the um, like the 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 the, the oh. Mo- molecular structures. We are dumbasses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, like the ke- like if it's the chemical or 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 what is it? The, oh fuck. What? Periodic table. Yeah, like what is the thing? Oh god, we are absolute morons. Chemistry was not my yeah. um, my 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 strong point. I wish I'd looked up the the artwork a bit more, but like I say, the only interesting thing I could find is that Dave Grohl wanted to have a, a therapist chair on it. Now, during the recording, so they spent two weeks in what bassist Nate Mandel described as a barn with a salmon stream running through it. Running through it. Okay. Running through it, so I'm imagining I'm imagining there's like total backwater shed uh, in the middle of fucking nowhere mm. with literal water running through it and the gear set up and everything. Grohl wasn't happy with the material recorded, and he actually wanted to scrap most of it. This was November. They took a break over Christmas. While on break, Dave went into another studio, the same studio that he recorded um, his stuff as last. Was it last? Late. Fucking never remember this name. It's late when he did the Pocket Watch EP or Pocket Watch album. Is that available? Can you hear that? No, it's not available. I could tell you the story why it was recorded on tape. What just onto and like was, a, just a tape deck? Or no, it sorry, was, it was recorded on. Had, like, oh, okay, yeah. There was a master tape, and it was made as part of uh, a distribution like magazine. Yep. Called I want to say Simple something. I can't remember the name. But basically the deal was it was like a self-run independent magazine that people would request a copy of. So you would make copies on demand on tape. Mm-hmm. So you would send like put $5 and a self, self-addressed and self-stamped envelope in the post and you'd get this tape back with these songs on it. Right. And basically it was only ever made on a handful of these master tapes, which... They one of the biggest flaws or drawbacks of tape is that it wears out over time. Sure. So they could only make so many copies, and it was there was requests made. Can we get these masters put to something more, more robust at the time? We wanted to release it on CD. Dave said no, and that is consigned this album to the history books. And if you've got a copy, I think Dave Grohl actually said, "I want the cassettes that were made." to be worth like three grand. I'm sure they'd be worth way fucking more than that now. Almost certainly, yeah. Uh, so they're as rare as hen's teeth. 
So anyway, he went back into the studio where he recorded that and he wrote the sort of second from last song, uh, Walking After You. Yep. And an acoustic version of Everlong. And it's actually that version of Walking After You that got used on the album. So this is after Christmas where before Christmas he didn't like the music. After Christmas they've came back, they've done Walking After You and he's like, that's a good, that's a good song. He's like, I'll keep that and put that in the, put that in the, uh, yep. the bank, whatever. And then it wasn't until they actually reconvened, I think it was February time. Now, this is when it got a bit... This is when Dave... I'm going to take the shine off Dave on this one. So they reconvened, Dave, Nate, and Pat. Mm-hmm. They told William, the drummer at the time, we don't need you here. It's okay. We're just re-recording a few parts. Nothing major. So it started where he recorded... He just wanted to do a bit of overdubbing on Monkey Wrench. Mm -hmm. He then redid the drums, re-recorded the entire drums on every track, bar two. The two that were left was (laughs) Doll, which the intro track barely has any drums in it, Mm -hmm. and Up in Arms, those two tracks are the only two that contain the original drums by William Goldsmith. That that doesn't make Grohl a bad guy. At the end of the day, if 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 you're there to oh you're you're are, is there something else coming? He didn't tell William. Okay, bit of a dick move. Bit of a dick move. Bit of a dick move. He it was actually Nate that admitted because Nate had been in the band with with William previously yeah, in Sunny Day Real Estate. Yeah, they were obviously friends before. They, they're a bit closer. It was Nate that admitted to William what had done. So it, it ended up that William left quite acrimonious, acrimoniously. Yeah, you would. William wanted to join them in Hollywood. He wanted to be there, but Dave Dave was the one that was like, nah, yeah, we'll be, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, we'll be okay. We'll, it, it's nothing major. I mean, we've, we've, we've all been there. You're in a relationship. You're, you're sort of in a working relationship with friends. You know, like, shit. I was in high school. Total fucking... Just not my finest moment in my life, but I. Do you know um, Young Enterprise? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. They sort of they give you some funding to do some. Yep. So work of some yeah, sort. Yeah, it's sort of this initiative that runs in presumably UK schools, since we went to schools in Scotland and England, where you, you know, there's a teacher and you make a business and you run it as a business. Okay. So I'd have been a fucking amazing capitalist, honestly. I'd have been so good. I just fucking hate capitalism. But the <laughs> um, so I, I I was the the I was the, the the manager or the CEO or whatever. I was I was the boss of our school's young enterprise, and we had a guy. I can't remember. Let's just say he did marketing. Let's just say his job was marketing, right? He wasn't doing his job. And I was getting, I was getting kind of pissed off. I was like, "Man, like we, I'm kind of proud of this. We open, we reopened our school's tuck shop. So like our school okay, used to cool. have a tuck yeah, shop. Nice. Our school used to have a tuck shop. They closed it. Nice. So we were like, well, let's just fucking reopen that and and and, and smash it. So we did. I think my year was one of the only years to actually issue a dividend at the end of the year, like when you when you close trading. Again, yeah. I'd have been a fucking amazing capitalist. But, um, well, my friend wasn't doing his job. He wasn't doing the marketing. He wasn't advertising. He wasn't getting the word out about the tuck shop. He wasn't. We were supposed to put signs. I fired him. This is where this is going to. Did you, 
Alan Sugar style or Donald Trump style? No, this is long before those dickheads were on television. But I, I fired him. I was like, look, man, you're not even coming to the meetings. You're signed up to be here. You have a role. You're not doing anything. I'm really sorry. We're going to give the job to someone else. You're kind of, you know, you can you can stay on and do this, but like you're not you're not the marketing guy anymore. And he quit the whole thing. Like he walked out. So that made our relationship a bit a bit frosty for for. A, oh, he took it personally, did he? Well, he wasn't too happy at literally being fired at the age of fucking whatever <laughs> we were. But for something that literally doesn't matter. My point being is in the situation with Grohl, like yeah, you're in this situation, and if someone's not doing the thing they're supposed to do to your expectations, because essentially this is his band, and it kind of always has been his band, makes things difficult, right? So. Could he have handled it better? Sounds like it, but also an uncomfortable situation to be in. It's something he has gone on record to say that, you know, he regrets the handling of of William. See, Dave's a good guy. He's still a good guy. He's not perfect, but he's still a good guy. But he's he's admitted, and it's sort of pretty clear that he hadn't quite got the drumming out of his system at that point. He was He's a drummer at heart. He's a he was a he was a drummer in the band called Scream before he was in Nirvana. Mm-hmm. He was the drummer in Nirvana, the biggest grunge band in the world, like you say, you know, thirteen million records from one album. And then, yeah, he's 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 a drummer at heart. And I have to be honest, drummers write the best fucking songs. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna. Going to defend that. You're going to counter with something you don't know, do you? Yeah, I don't know either way. What, what, what makes you think drummers write the best songs? The, the only reason I say that is because Chris Cornell was a drummer. Right. And he's a good songwriter. And I yet think. neither of us listened to anything after Audio Slave. So, you know, how good was he? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, he, I listened to his early stuff. And then <laughs> one that we've not done on this, we when we talked about Ruben. Mm-hmm. We were going to talk about Ruben. We were going to talk about Ruben. Haven't talked about Ruben. We will talk about Ruben one day. One day. Uh, Jamie Lemon. He was a drummer. Okay. But as a guitarist and, and vocalist. But also but 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 he was a front man. Uh-huh. And there we go. There's there's Dave Grohl. To be drummer, fair to support frontman. To support your point as well. Ryan Richards from Funeral for a Friend. Also brilliant songwriter. Did did a lot of songwriting for, for Faf. So Um Oh my god, I can't believe his name has escaped me. What's the band? That's gonna Queen. Oh yeah, okay. Roger Taylor. Roger Taylor, he was he was a prolific songwriter. He wrote a lot of the the, the, the really like uh rocky songs in, in Queen. Is it less so that drummers make good songwriters and more so these guys are just talented musicians? Possibly. They're really Maybe good just musicians. A That's... Maybe just a little bit. Just give them I'll give them some credit. They hit things for a living. Good on you. <laughs> speaking of drummers though so because they'd lost the drummer Dave did all the recording for better or for worse and that's another um, thing sorry it, to interrupt that's another thing if the guys we've already established prolific songwriter probably a perfectionist don't get this far in your career and to get as big as Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl has without some level of OCD if he thought he could do it better he's probably going to sure. do it better I'm glad you mentioned that word perfectionist because there's a, a common theme that I've read while looking this up and I've found that this album almost went in the bin. Almost. Well, you the, said before before Christmas they weren't happy with it. 
One by One, the album that came to after that, almost went in the bin. Nothing Left to Lose, almost went in the bin. Three albums that Dave was not happy with, that they then reconvened after some time and reflection, mm-hmm. rewrote parts they didn't like, re, you know, re-recorded bits, and made it right. And this album was the last time, maybe the first time, but it was also the last time that they were, felt pressure from a record label. Now, they've, they've stated that it never changed anything, but they all, the, the budgeting was a struggle with this album right. because they had to consider a budget. So the after doing two weeks in one recording studio, another, you know, a little bit of time in another, and then they settled on this recording studio in in Hollywood, which again, Nate, the bassist, went on to say describe this studio as a small studio that sometimes moonlighted as a pawn set and it looked the part. Right. Fair play, cool. But apparently it cost them a shit ton more than they ever expected. And capital were being a bit, you know, we need some material from you guys. We've given you an advance. You're burning through that advance, recording it. What's going to happen? So they've admitted that there was that there, but they've they've stated that it didn't change anything. But then to quote um, Dave Grohl himself, sometimes bands just need to find their feet. Sometimes they do. And he clearly knew where he had a vision by that point. Um, so once they finished recording, they actually then recruited drummer Taylor Hawkins. He'd just finished recording a little-known album, minor, minor album, <laughs> called Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Oh, that. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. What was, yeah, what was, I think what so. was the artist again? <laughs> Alanis Morissette. Um, God. Cool. Yeah, God. God from Dogma. Thank you. Yeah, she, uh, so, yeah, that album, he, he did the drums for. I think that I, I, I want to actually. This is something I wish I'd, I'd got some numbers together for, and I just want to. I just want to quickly do a quick googs on this one because, you know, never mind. Massive, massive album. Yeah. Never. Yeah, Nirvana. Never mind. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and fill for us while you're doing this Google. So I never really liked Nirvana either. I'll put that out there. That kind of comes across. <laughs> I, not going to lie. Am I that obvious? Okay. I don't know if I've stated it before previously. It maybe had came up during Muse. But, yeah, we've said before, you know, my my tastes were Linkin Park and and Foo Fighters. And, not fucking Foo Fighters. Linkin Park and Papa Roach and Limp Bizkit and all that stuff. I just I just didn't care for, for Nirvana and the whole... Um, Kurt Cobain thing I never never got never sort of got suckered by it I suppose is the way I consider it I just okay some some I'm guy just blows his head find... off I'm just like alright whatever bro I mean it helped them okay so in the US never mind biggest rock grunge album released in the ni- early 90s in the US it's certified diamond 10 million sales what a terrible time to yawn diamond jesus i didn't even know that was a thing well there we go how many sales do you think jagged little pill had repeat never mind again 10 10.6 million 10 million jagged little pill is it more is it less i don't think you'd be seeing it if it was less 
or would it be close to? I'm just just US, US, and never mind. There's ten million in the US. Mm-hmm. Eleven million for Jagged Little Pill. Sixteen. Ooh, smashed it. Sixteen million copies. It just, I mean, it was, I mean, it's way more accessible than Never Mind. Maybe that probably helps. Yeah. Is it? Is that? Uh, is that Blood Diamond level? <laughs> that's that's a legal diamond. Yeah, that's that's the stuff you have to give back if you find out you've got one. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, just one of those sort of perspective things that I think when we talk about rock music and being like popular and big. How many copies do you think Colour and the Shape sold in the US? Well, 10 million is diamond. I, I think a million sales is diamond. Uh, I think a million is platinum. I don't know how that... It, it it's hun- different for every country, so it's... Is it 100,000? In, in the UK, I think 500,000 is, but then in Canada, 100,000 is platinum, so it varies from country to country, so that's why I'm just comparing US sales. Um ah, sorry, I didn't realize what web page I was on, and I've just literally saw how much it sold. So <laughs> hang on. Oh wait, I never said that. I never said that. Ask the question again. How many? What was the question, Lev? How uh, how many sales did the color and the shape have? Hmm, I'm feeling something. I'm seeing a number. It's becoming clearer. It begins with a two, a two, three. Keep going. Two three. Two, wow, three, you, two, this three. is amazing. Two three. I think it's a. Is it a four? Two three four. It's a four. It's a four. How did you know it was a four? Three, four. Oh, this is going on too long. <laughs> oh, don't two billion three hundred forty-two thousand. Keith, I'm absolutely blown away. Considering you know you guessed that round figures for eleven million for for Jag Little Pale. What can I say, man? Two point two point three four two million. Someone was exactly. talking to me. That's it. Ah, oh, now I'm confused. What did the likes of Significant Other do? A very good question, actually. Or, yeah. I mean, or not so much Significant think, Other, but like I'll, you know, I'll, chocolate. I'll fill, I'll fill while you while you look. Please do. I think it's 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 quite. The, the, like I say, I think it's really good perspective to sort of see what sales what would we deem as as successful now you know we've 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 talked about like Limbiscuit, massive international band um we're talking about foo fighters today you know this is their second album selling over two million there was nirvana's second album selling over 10 million there's alanis morissette's fucking second album selling 30 well, it's it's sold 33 million worldwide by the way James. um fucking you know these numbers we just don't see today, and we don't see it in the music we listen to. If, if it, do you know how many they thought Nevermind was going to sell? Ten thousand, two hundred thousand. All right. That was what I've forgotten. What another grunge band was it? The Melvins. Soundgarden. They'd just released an album on Sub Pop, or they'd re- on Geffen. Sorry, same label, and that's what they thought Nevermind was going to do. They were like, eh, a grunge album did this well. I'm sure the next one will do just as well." Yeah, I've and it absolutely fucking took it away. Six million for chocolate starfish. Good numbers. Still good numbers. Real good numbers. Yeah, I mean, but like we've we're, we we don't really see the comparisons because we're obviously not looking at your jagged little pills or your Madonnas or your Beyonces or whatever because 
that's that's not the music that we grew up we found love growing up when we were young so i'm sure these 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 albums do way more than than we were do hence these artists are way bigger than than than, than you know the artists that we listen to etc but that's that just is what it is i suppose yeah, it's a fair fair comment. Uh, just something that I think is kind of interesting to sort of take a step back and when we do look at the wider picture of the music industry, rock artists since the 90s just haven't sold as much as a pop artist and that's why pop is played on the radio more often than rock. I mean, the album reached number 10 in the US. It actually reached number 3 in the UK. Yeah, another thing, how often do these albums and these artists get number one hits. Uh, well, there was no number ones on the album. Uh, there was a few little nominations. It got nominated for a Grammy as the best rock album in 1998. I mean, the album wasn't without crit- critics. Just, just, uh, I, I was just thinking there for a second. I was like, you know, what might be one of the biggest selling rock metal albums of all time? Well, Do Dark Side of the Moon, surely. All right, rock. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go that far. I went another place, a place I don't normally go to, because the day we cover this band, I am going to be a very sorry lad. But do you know how much the Black Album sold? Fuck, it was huge, because it's still selling today. No, that's the that's there's there's the next part, and this is when we're looking at these numbers. These are twenty. The numbers we're looking at are we're looking at on Wikipedia, which is referencing an article from like two thousand eleven. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we've got to be sort of a bit, put that in perspective, but I guess the Black Album in the US, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to guess, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ruin it, I'm going to try and guess. 20 million? So roughly by around 2018, your suggestion is 20 million. Metallica's Black Album had sold 16,830,000 records. So, and I think two of them are us. I own the Black Album. <laughs> I have that physically. One of two Metallica albums I actually owned. Do you know what the other one was? Uh, um, Load? Yeah, St. Anger. Reload. St. Anger. Oh, St. Anger. Oh, God, yeah, that's one I have. Of course I don't, Oh, yeah, I've got that one. I've got St. Anger. I'm trying to look, think about the Metallica albums I own. Uh, Black Album, St. Anger, Garage Inc., Ooh. Uh S and M and I've recently acquired a copy of Ride the Lightning on vinyl. I've got Ride the Lightning twice on vinyl because I also have it on picture disc, which is an unofficial is an unofficial copy. Oh my god. I paid way too much money for and now I'm not allowed to sell on Discord. Don't tell Lars. <laughs> my copy of Nevermind that I've got is a a bootleg copy. That I'm not allowed to sell on Discogs. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Discogs have got a thing with, with bootlegs. There's a market for bootlegs, don't get me wrong. Some of them are really well made. But yeah, you're not allowed to sell questionable, uh, questionably sourced vinyl on Discogs, unsurprisingly. Spoiler alert, I was not a fan of... Man- I, I grew out of my Metallica phase. I was a fan of Metallica, and then I was like, huh. I'm 18 now. I think I'm over this. <laughs> Mine was a different journey. My Metallica phase was was very 
sort of similar to the way Ped described his his way that he would find bands in going in reverse. Because, I mean, my relationship with Metallica basically started, really got in, in deep with St. Anger, and then I went backwards, thankfully. And, you know, realised how shit St. Anger was, because I got it, and I was like, this doesn't sound very good. Why? What's all the fuss about? And then you go through the back catalogue one by one, and you're like, oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, the Black Album, as a as a kid, as a, as a, as a you know, 17, 18-year-old, that was great. That was really well recorded, really well made, and and you know, well rounded as an album. And then you go further back, and you're like, "Wow, oh, no, no." And and then it was it wasn't until maybe I was in my mid twenties that I was like, "I know what my favorite Metallica album is, and I know why it's my favorite album, and it will always be my favorite album." Why is Master it, of Puppets? Why is it Death by Method? <laughs> why? What was your favorite Metallica album, and why is it Lulu? Yeah, I'm just uh, looking at the discography here. It's two albums. Lulu's not there. <laughs> it's because it's a pack of shite and no one wants to admit it exists. Oh, absolutely. But anyway, we're not talking about Metallica. That is definitely going to be another I, episode. Whoa. I am the table. Oh, what God. the fuck are we talking about Foo Fighters for? We aren't talking about Foo Fighters. That's what I was going to get onto. A name that's come up in a couple of our episodes, probably because they were pretty prolific reviewer, Ryan Schreiber. Yes. From... Pitchfork. Classic Pitchfork. He he hated this album. He gave it a 3.4 out of 10. Out of 10? That seems harsh. It is harsh. He called it sorely dated. And Pitchfork being the ever open-minded gatekeepers that they are, uh, they re-reviewed it in 2007 for the, the 10-year anniversary. And they were a little less harsh and they gave it 5.8 out of 10. Was it our, our old boy Ryan that went back to it? Uh, no, it was someone. It was someone else. I've not written the name down. I just, I, I wrote the name Ryan, and I was like, yeah, we've, we've, we've spoke about his opinions previously. Do you think he was uh, a troll? The biggest, I, I, I don't know. I don't trust Pitchfork reviews. I've got a bit of a love hate relationship with Pitchfork. Fair, fair. I guess I, I, I refer to them as gatekeepers. I think they're a bit up themselves. I think they, they dislike music that sounds like everyone will like it. I don't know that I know Pitchfork particularly well. I don't, you know, over the years, I've never actually gone to reviews. I've never actually, that that's not yeah, true. Right. I have, fuck, what is his name on YouTube? I've never let a review stop me from buying a record. Tony Fantana. Anthony Fantano. Anthony Fantano. <laughs> Fuck's sake. The, the, the internet's busiest internet nerd. Yeah, the, Music the, nerd. Needle, the needle drop. A friend of mine drop. got me onto his channel years ago, and for a yeah. while I liked it. And then I was a bit like, oh, do you know what? I'm, maybe not. Maybe this isn't for mm. me. But periodically I've gone back to Anthony Fantano just to see, oh, here's an album I fucking love. What does he think about it? And sure. For some reason, I went back last year and I wanted to see what his opinion on Palmpset was by Protest the Hero because I think that's how you pronounce it, Palmpset. I, yeah. I, I cannot fathom how much I love that album. Like I think it's 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 borderline a ten out of ten for me. And he was like, I gave it one track and I turned it off, and I was like, You're fucking dead to me, Anthony Fantano. You're <laughs> fucking dead to me. That's I'm a, done with I'm, this shit. I'm lose a fan. Go fuck yourself, man. You don't know nothing, man. You don't know nothing. Oh my god, goodness me! No, it's, I I think I like his I, mm, yeah, he's questionable sort of methods. Especially if you're going to say as a reviewer that I gave it one track, 
you've you've basically invalidated your entire criticism. I, I, I paraphrase. He might have said one track. He 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 didn't like it. Is basically was the, was the point. He so much so he didn't even give it a review. It was in one of his like. I've been too busy to give these proper reviews, so here's like four albums in ten minutes, and you know, or five yeah. albums in ten minutes, and yeah, he just said it would, it you know, he didn't like it. He also said he didn't like Dance, Dance Gavin Dan, so I just really ran out of time for the guy. But then that's where we oh, yeah, that's yeah. where we differ mm-hmm. in our approach, in my I'm, approach I'm not, anyway. I'm not a Dance Gavin Dance fan either. That's so. why you don't need to be a Dance Gavin Dance fan, but to say they're bad, whether he did or not, I can't remember. But we just we just we just differed on opinions. But that's where we sort of differ in our approach to this podcast. I hate the idea that we are criticising this music. I don't like to think we're criticising this. We're revisiting it. We're trying to see what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it. Someone else might love or hate, you know, have the complete opposite opinion of what we do. And that's absolutely fucking fine. That's totally cool. Because this is supposed to be an art form. It's supposed to be subjective. Someone's going to like your shit out there. And good for you. Like, you've made that person happy. For someone to be like a critic of something fucking boils my piss. Like, yeah, can you do better? Not so. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, that's usually my, my thought of feeling on critics is is they you know they take they have a career in bringing folk down a peg, which yeah. I don't think. I think there there is it's got its place. I don't get me wrong. I think we're fine to review things and to say you don't like something, but it's always those reviews that seem to be. Especially today, in today's like clickbait world, where you want to say something headline-grabbing so that people click on it, people react to it, people make reaction videos. You know, you'll pick up a reaction video quicker than you'll pick up on the actual review, and then you get someone else's view on it. Yeah. That's just the world we live in, and really sadly that we live in, that people will base their entire opinion on something on what someone else said that someone else said. Yeah. And it's like, just go out and fucking buy it yourself. Do you like it? Yes or no? If you like something, good for you. If you dislike something, good for you. Fair enough. As long as it was your decision to dislike and it wasn't someone else telling you to say that, fine, fucking do it. I always feel like if you're coming at it from a critic's perspective, you're coming at it from some stance of authority, from some level that you are defining if it's good or bad. That's sort of how I view a critic. So, yes, we have said on on this podcast, I have said I do or do not like something. I think X, Y, or... Like, Golden State. Mentioned it before, bringing, coming back to it. I didn't enjoy Golden State. Not going to disagree with you on that one. Didn't enjoy Golden State. Thought it was boring. Wasn't for me. But it, someone else might love it. That's not to say it's a bad record because I couldn't make that record. I couldn't put that record out and get the 100,000 sales that it, it, it got made. So, yeah, I didn't like it. That's the bottom line. But for a critic to say this is bad, I feel like they're saying definitively it is bad. That, that's, my, that's my beef with critics. They, they, come, they, they come from a place, I think their authority, their self proclaimed authority comes from that they, they listen to a lot of music or or they watch a lot of films or they read a lot of books and i don't think that's a place of authority yeah that's just i think yeah you, you've just exposed you've, you've, you've yourself listened to more yeah yeah you've exposed yourself to 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 a lot more material and so you have a you think you have a grasp on what makes good or bad material f- f- fair enough but it still just boils down to your opinion do you and then this is what I just want to say to someone did you enjoy it yes or no the latest Architects album 
Did I enjoy it? No. I went back to it today. Do I still not enjoy it? I still don't enjoy it. Moving on. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to influence someone and say to them, like, don't listen to that album. You should never listen to that album. Because I think it's important to... And I'll say the same for St. Anger as well. That it's important to listen to that album if you want to understand the journey that Metallica went on. I would highly recommend watching the Some Kind of Monster um documentary because we there, but okay. i would i think it's really important to see where a band is and i mean kind of coming back to color and the shape that would have made a fantastic movie the making of this album the backstabbing the the backstabbing. almost chucking it in the bin the 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 origin story where it's it's you know it's this one guy he's just wanted to do these do what he likes he's gone through a divorce he's got a backstory about him i would love to see a movie made about the making of this album. I think it would be really interesting to watch. And then it, it carried on. So even after the album came out, Pat Smear left the band. He left because he didn't want to commit to the tour. He was he was burnt out, didn't want to do it anymore. They'd done a massive tour after the, the self-titled out. He actually did, he actually quit in public. He did it during an MTV awards ceremony. Damn. It didn't quit public. I mean, it wasn't like a. It was a planned event. They they played, they played one song, and then Pat left the stage and like, and Pat is leaving, and we're going to be replaced by Franz Stahl, who was the guitarist in Dave Grohl's previous band to Nirvana, Scream. And Franz is he's the one who's the guitarist in the video for My Hero. Right. I can't remember. I I know the video for My Hero. It's the guy running in and out of the of the place on fire. He's saving everything. The band are playing in a smoky room. Couldn't tell you if Pat Smear was in that video or not, and and, and who he's not. Franz is. He's not. So he was. That was his his first, and I think it might have been his only video. They re-released. Uh, so so three songs officially got released from this album: "Monkey Wrench," "Everlong," and "My Hero." Mm-hmm. Uh, they all charted pretty well in the UK. Monkey Wrench actually hit number one in the UK rock and metal chart. Got a number 10 in Scotland. Well done. Everlong, that reached number two in the UK rock and metal chart. Number nine in the UK singles chart. And number 13 in Scotland. You see, uh, you see officially those three songs. There is a video for Walking After You. Okay. Walking After You was made, was re-recorded. So the version that got released as a single is not the version that's on the album. Oh, really? It got re-recorded and released uh, for the X-Files movie. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Fucking hell. Dave Duchovny, he wanted a Foo Fighters song on it. David Red Shoe Diaries Duchovny, yep. And it was record- re-recorded with Franz Stahl and Taylor Hawkins playing. Right. Okay. So I'll. So if um, I go and listen to the video version, it's going to be different from the album version. It should be. I've not listened to the video version because I'm just curious if they put that re-record on the sort of digital release. It should be. So walking after you, album. So it wasn't released from Color and the Shape. It was released from. It was released as a standalone single. For the X Files movie of all things. Money, money, money. That is money. That is weird. I think I've only seen the X Files movie like once or twice. I wasn't. I was never in X Files. Well, neither was I. I. Don't don't know if I should have been. I think I want to get into X Files. 
Is it on Disney Plus? Uh, might be. Was it made by Fox? If it's made by Fox, it's on Disney. Yeah, I think it's on Disney Plus. Because they remastered it all and put it back out. But yeah, did they? I remember. Oh, I should maybe give it. A- I remember watching like the odd episode when I was too young to watch it on whatever channel it was on, and I was like, I don't get this. Why is that guy got bees coming out of his eyes? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never, like I say, never really gave that single a shot so I might give that a listen after we finish up tonight just to see what the differences are we have digressed heavily we've talked about Anthony Fantano we've talked about Metallica where are we now with Foo Fighters Pat Smears just left Pat Smears left Franz Stahl's in he was only in the band he, he, he never recorded other than Walking After You he never recorded with them he got kicked out during the recording of um, Nothing Left to Lose Again, creative differences. People not towing the line for, for Dave Grohl's expectations, that's fair. So, nothing left to lose. They ended up, they started as a four-piece, they ended it as a three-piece, which was Nate and Taylor, who are now the three, Nate, Nate, Nate Taylor and Dave are the three longest-serving members of Foo Fighters now. Yeah, because I'm looking at it now, I remember Chris Shefflett coming in he was from me first in the gimme gimme's and no use for a name he joined after the recording of nothing left to lose but before the recording of one by one pat smear rejoined in 2005 as as a full-time guitarist as a fully credited guitarist for foo fighters correction from 2005 to 2010 he was a session touring member and then okay from 2010 became a full-time member and then they got a keyboard player in as well rami jaffe again he started as a session sort of musician for them but i think again in in this same documentary that i've seen dave Grohl like walking around his house maybe in mtv cribs or something maybe not as shit (laughs) it it was like him talking about like we've got the, the foo fighters family and he talks about them as like being a family band Clearly, they're really close. He's known Pat since like the nineties, touring with Nirvana. Mm-hmm. He's known these guys for many, many years, and I think they've all just kind of really gelled and bonded together now. And that's where he's. Na- that's where they're at now, and they're in a position now where I don't think there's any. Again, there's no money worries, so there's no pressure. Yeah. To to make a big hit record, and I think the last album they've made is a disco album under a under a different name. Right. Uh, I'm totally the, unaware the, of the this. DGs. I'm totally unaware of this. <laughs> yeah, they've they've made a um they've they've called themselves uh sort of they've given themselves a, a pseudonymous and alternative name so that I think they've got yeah, the holy shits and the DGs. Okay. And it's just the the things you can do as Foo Fighters. It's something only Foo Fighters could do. Well, when once you're sort of as as established and popular as Foo Fighters, yeah, maybe you do go out there and just try a couple of things. Good on them. Yeah, so they can fuck about. But uh, that's all I've really got to say about Colour and Ship. It's an album that I really enjoy going back to. I recently acquired it on vinyl. It's a remaster, the 2007 remaster. And for anyone who's interested in picking up vinyl records, I would so highly recommend getting this version of the Colour and the Shape from like, I think it was pressed in like 2014, 2013 onwards. It is the best-sounding vinyl record you'll ever find. 
Wow, big claim. Hands down, hands down, and I can I've you know I've I've got a moderate collection. I will if I want to test a new piece of my equipment, a new whether it's a new amp or a new needle, that is going to be the first record I will play because I know the fucking album inside out. I can tell when something's different, but also it sounds excellent. Anyone who's wanting to get in a vinyl, get Colour and the Shape, find the 2014-ish repress, you will not regret it. That's impressive. So we're, like we were talking about with Audio Slave, we both listened to the first album, didn't go back to them. I never listened, you know, too much into to the Foo Fighters albums and stuff like that. I certainly never, you know, kept kept them in, in, in my circulation. So where where did you go with Foo Fighters after this? Did, did you stay with them or...? A little. I got one by one, mm-hmm. purely for the lead single, um, All My Life. Mm-hmm. Fucking cracking song. Uh, that's the same album with uh, Times Like These on. Yep. Really didn't like that album. Why? How come? It was really boring. <laughs> really, really boring. Can you know what my opinion of this um, album, to be fair? And then a friend of mine got In Your Honour. And give me a copy to listen to. I listened to that. Again, a couple of decent singles from it. The best album that they've made since this is a live album. He did an acoustic album called Skin and Bones. Okay. Fucking love it. Absolutely love that album. I could put that album on any day of the week. When was this? Uh, It came out in 2006 or seven. I want to say. Uh, it was like their first live album, and it's like I say, it's it's a uh, it's an acoustic album. So what did they and... just sort of do like an acoustic session and recorded it? No, no, it's it's like live. It was like three days. They played this big sort of concert hall and recorded the session over there to get like a big, big old album out of it. Right, Bones, um, yeah, released November seventh, two thousand six. 2006 there we go uh really really good if if anyone just wants like a foo fighters greatest hits smash in the version of my hero especially oh mwah, chef's kiss fucking love it prefer prefer it to the original prefer it recorded to the original. august 29th 30th and 31st 2006 at the pantages theater in los angeles pantages pantages i'll let you decide i mean they got pat smear back in for it and that was with rami jeffrey he makes an appearance in it. So that's just both Rami and Pat sort of pick up from about 2007, I think. Yeah, so they were both present for it. So it clearly meant a lot to them to be able to come back, well, Rami to join, but for Pat to come back after leaving for best part of almost 10 years, almost by at that point, you know, says says that he had a lot of faith in it. Yeah. The UK release of that was actually a two-disc version and it had, disc two was their Hyde Park set which I think is when Brian May comes on and starts noodling with them <laughs> noodling, wicked <laughs> that also got made into a DVD so it's their only live CD they've ever made, they've ever released like officially So interesting, ever, really... s- ever seen the Foos live? I have not, I miss them and the fucking support act was caving that would have been incredible I have seen them live, though I thought I had seen them twice. 
but I think I've only seen them once. Tea in the Park? Again, Tea in the Park. And I saw them same year I saw Audio Slave, 2005. Definitely saw them then. They were with... Yeah, so the 2005 lineup. They uh, they headlined the Saturday while Green Day headlined the Sunday. I was at the Sunday show. I, I'd only got a one-day weekend pass. I guarantee that you weekend. saw Queens of the Stone Age as well then. Yeah, I saw Queens of the Stone Age, Green Day, your codename is Milo... Oh, uh, Block Party, Kaiser Chiefs. Yep. Fucking cracking day that was. A little bit of Kasabian, maybe. Snoop Dogg. That was when I saw uh, Kasabian, Snoop Dogg. Uh, oh, yeah, Snoop Doggy Dogg. There he is, before Razorlight, or after Razorlight and before Queens of Stone Age. Who was playing in the King Tut's tent? I don't remember being in it very much. Ian Brown, Interpol, Echo and the Bunnyman, Katie Tunstall, Bright Eyes, Sons and Daughters, The Last Novel, The Black Velvet, The Faint. I think I wanted to see Interpol, but I ended up missing them. Perhaps to get a good position for Green Day. Interpol have got an amazing. I never got into the band, but they've got. I'm sure they've got an amazing song. Is it called Evil? Where the video is a. It's, it's the puppets. The puppet at a crime, uh, like a, an accident. Like oh, I've got a life flying so don't sue. That tune. I don't know why. It just that's a banger of a tune there from Interpol. Loving, I love that song, uh, that album, Antics. So I saw Foo Fighters twice, Saturday 9th of July 2005, Team the Park. I th- oh, sorry, I thought I saw them twice. Definitely saw them in 2005. The next time they played Team the Park was 2011. But I'm looking at the 2011 p- lineup, and there's nobody there I went to see. <laughs> so it's just, a, just one of those... Uh, Mandela effect, maybe sort of maybe, memories. Yeah, maybe I just saw the lineup and, and thought they were there. Did I go see Kids in Glass Houses? Jimmy World were there as well. The Strokes were. There. I just I went to didn't go see any of the headliners. Arctic Monkeys on the Friday, Beyonce and Coldplay on the Saturday, Foo Fighters the Sunday, Pulp. Did I see Mike? Not My Chemical Romance. Yeah, I don't. Sounds like sounds like it never happened, mate. It does, doesn't it? I don't want to. I want to say I saw them twice, but. I definitely wouldn't have gone to one of their gigs. I wouldn't have gone to one of their tours. And I just don't think I was at this 2011 in the park. But then Kesha was... Do you know the weird thing about all of this is? Kesha played Saturday the 9th of 2011. I kind of remember her being there. Okay. (laughs) But I don't remember. So either I went to Team the Park and saw nobody for the weekend... Got just rinsed. Just got absolutely <laughs> melted and watched Foo Fighters on the Sunday. Or I didn't actually go and I'm imagining this whole thing. Who knows? Who who, who knows? does know? Any of my friends listening, if we went to Team the Park in 2011, fucking let me know. <laughs> like I say, I, I missed our chance to see them. I want to say 2003, 2004, they were doing like a UK tour. Um, they were going to play. They were they played Newcastle Arena, mm-hmm. and I I just missed the chance. I, I don't think I had the cash or, or whatever the, the the situation was. I just couldn't couldn't get there. Couldn't get a ticket. And like I said, the the, the support act was Kevin, and they're a band that I got into about maybe five or six years down the line. And it's a really regrettable story. Like that, their, their singer recently passed away in a, in a motorcycle accident. Bummer. But he was the bassist in Old Man Gloom, who 
if you're ever into your your, your doom stoner metal stuff, they were fucking kings of it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, you know, he, he was one of them, one of those sort of artists that, you know, he just, he's prolific. He, he had his own, he really did have it of his own sound and he, and he got a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff for it. So his, his name was Caleb, Caleb Schofield. Fair enough. He had, yeah, he died in 2018. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of his bands I liked and I, I never got to saw any of them live. So it was a bit of a shame, but the, yeah, Foo Fighters, they're, they're one of those bands that I just see the name and I'll, I'll only, I listen to the hits. This, this album, I'll go back to, because I like the album, unlike yourself. I like this album as a as a piece. I didn't dislike the album. I didn't dislike it. It just just didn't do a lot for me. Don't get me wrong, and I think I said this at the very beginning, hearing My Hero and Everlong again was great. I've never really liked Monkey Range. See, the, see like the big sort of screaming bit at the end of Monkey Range has always grated me. Do not like really? Dave Grohl's really strained out there scream. It's his aggressive voice. It's not really. It's you know. It's not a scream in the metal context. It's it's a scream of this guy who is actually quite a talented vocalist. Just just going balls out. Just 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 going to the very end of very edge of his limit. And I've, it happens a few times on this album, and I'm not a fan of it. Fundamentally, do not enjoy when he when he does that sort of scream. And like I say, at the end of Monkey Ranch, it fucking grates on me. And it all always I'm has. looking. I'm looking for a fact. I was told that, so I can't find it on Wikipedia. So I'm going to say it was bullshit, or at least it's been embellished. But apparently, there was some little factoid floating about in the in the 2000s that it took him something like 30 attempts or something to get that bit. Right, probably why his voice is so fucked on whatever version went on it. Like, because it's it's a full, like minute of him really aggressively shouting out, like hundred percent, putting putting a hundred percent into it, losing his breath, mm-hmm. and it, it took him either it either took him a lot of attempts to get it right, or he got it right first time and he could never do it again. I don't know what, which is. Which one of the two? I really wanted to see just a little bullet point on Wikipedia about it, but I couldn't find it in, in the last five seconds while you were talking. I'll tell, <laughs> so. tell you one thing that's not really came up in conversation. We, we, we joked about it before during Jimmy World. Who did it first? The, 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 oh, the Palm, the palm Mute. Mute. Oh. Not a lot on this album. Yeah. It doesn't really feature a lot on this album, if at all. It's not. They really, they nailed that in, really. I mean, you're thinking of like, um, All My Life, yeah. that's got really heavy heavy palm muting at the in the intro which again came out um, after jimmy Eat world oh yeah that was that's like 2002 i think it was 2002 it? and bleed american was 2001 so you know okay. currently from the perspective jimmy Eat world did the palm mute first fuck you dave Grohl. <laughs> fair enough i'm glad you settled that argument keith i really thank am. you i think we need to, to to wrap this one up and we've got a few things to say yeah so some big life events are coming up for me. Fucking getting married. Congratulations. I can't wait until we get to get to see it. Third time lucky. Third time lucky. Thank you very much. COVID, you can't, can't say that a cunt. I'm going to say it. COVID was a cunt, mate. Uh, yeah, so I'm getting married. You're going to be there. You and your wife are going to be there. We've just not had the foresight to 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 do enough recordings beforehand. So we're going to go on a little break, aren't we? Yeah, I think if we take a few weeks off, 
allow ourselves to regroup and uh, come back hopefully with something something good, something people will listen to. Yeah, we're going to take a little hiatus. We've got one or two things in the pipeline coming up for while we're away, but essentially there won't be regular episodes for, what is it, the next four weeks? I think we worked that out. I was going to quickly just check the calendar. Uh, I think the date we intend on, re- on releasing the next episode after this one uh, will be the 27th of August. Yeah. So if you're really interested and you have listened this far, put that date in your diary. We're not going to disappear. We are going to um, work on a couple of things. I've uh, got some guests uh, in the in the pipeline. And yeah, we're going to start moving on to the next phase of our music listening life, I think. Totally. I mean, it's been a pretty good journey so far. I, we didn't think we would do more than one episode, let alone get to 14 episodes. So just life is hitting hard at the moment so we're just going to take we're going to we're going to do what dave did we're going to we're going to take a break we're going to regroup after my my wedding and then we're going to get back on the old wagon yeah so i'm i'm excited to to well, what the next few weeks are going to hold um uh, we've got a lot on and yeah be good to come back and and do this cuz I've, I've really been enjoying these sessions and chatting about shit and uh, my terrible music taste and yours too definitely so do we even know what we're doing we well i mean we don't are we going to say what we're doing in four weeks it's yours next if you've got one in mind that you want to come back to i'm I'm more than welcome to it but if you want to keep it a secret then let's announce it on instagram at aogb podcast let's 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 put that little easter egg out there let's let's just let's just keep that one back for a bit and we'll announce it in time because you know we need content because we're going to do fuck all for four weeks but yeah <laughs> let's uh i'll uh I'll, i've not thought about it to be fair to be very honest because i knew we were taking this this break so i'll uh, i'll come back to that okay well we'll uh we'll put that on the back burner uh was there anything else you wanted to say about uh the colour and the shape or anything Foo Fighters related? I think you just said something there about like the you would listen to the hits. I would 100% listen to a Foo Fighters Greatest Hits album. And I'm pretty confident I would enjoy that album. But we've already discussed, Foo Fighters have been around for years. They've been quite prolific in, in, in the last sort of 10-15 years. I've never gotten into them before. I don't think I'm going to get into them now. So, you know, there's just... They're just not my kind of band, but I can appreciate them. I do understand that, or I do think that they're they're a very good band. It's just not one hundred percent to my tastes. So, yeah, That's fair. I was was I a little bit disappointed by this. Was I was I looking for another bleed American? Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of was. I was a bit. I think my initial comments to you were, "Oh fucking hell, this is another snorefest." I was a bit worried that we were going to have another Golden State on our hands, but. No, it's definitely, it's definitely not yeah, that's to that extent. One. I have to be honest. Totally, totally. But yeah, no, it's um, it was interesting to listen to a Foo Fighters album for for once. I can finally say I've done it. So yeah, good, good, good shout on the old foods. Yeah, thanks. So, um, guess I'm just going to sign us out and uh, speak to you all again in a few weeks' time. Take us home, love. Take us home. So, thank- and take us on uh, take hol- us- on holiday. Take us on holiday. I'll, I'll do Take that. Take us on holiday. So thank you very. 
<laughs> thank you very much for listening uh, this has been a live or just blethering head on over to our instagram or twitter and facebook at aodb podcast for any updates and uh, news as we tease our next release that's coming in a few weeks time so uh, i'm gonna leave it at that i'm not gonna say there's gonna be uh, what the album is gonna be next time but there will be a next time so i look forward to talking to you all then thank you very much Next time we're back, I'll be fucking with it. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.